Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. They are good. But overwhelmingly, to characterize their lives, they're sinners in deep rebellion against God. However, regularly, the redeemed do good, and on occasion, so do the wicked. So we have a very strong list of verses in here, and we could take them as absolutes if we divorce them from the rest of the Bible. If it says no one understands, no one seeks, no one is righteous, no one does good, except for maybe about 300 verses we can find addressing those topics, saying that quite a few people do all those things. So the exceptions, not only here, but throughout the Bible, they're inherent in the text. If you understand the author, God, and the story, then you're not thrown with the exceptions. You read it, and you understand the thrust of what Paul is saying. Now, verse 13, the first two phrases, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. So Paul quotes this from Psalm 5. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. In Psalm 5, verse 9, it says they flatter with their tongue. Now, from their throats escape words of death. So the comparison to an open tomb. Those in rebellion against God, if you listen to their counsel, you'll be destroyed. And they flatter. Think about flattery. Flattery is one of the great sins of the democratic politician. He flatters the people. The voice of the people is the voice of God. He unjustly flatters the flock to fleece them. That's what he does. He flatters the flock to fleece them. And then the remainder of this verse, 13c, the poison of asps is under their lips. That's from Psalm 140. Now, a poisonous asp, that was a small venomous snake in Egypt that they maybe don't use that terminology any longer, but it's thought to have been a cobra, a poisonous asp. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, that's from Psalm 10, verse 7. As Paul is going through this list that he's pulling out from different books of the Old Testament, do you think he has to stop between each one to look it up? Get out Isaiah, (laughs) this big scroll, unroll it across the room. That's the wrong part. Keep going out the door. Get Psalms, all 150 of them. I don't believe that's what he was doing. It seems to me that Paul had memorized a tremendous amount of scripture. And some people are good at rote memorization where they memorize an entire chapter or even a book word for word. Other people don't readily have that skill or ability, but they immerse themselves in the Bible. They listen to teaching tapes. They read. They think about God a lot. And so when they're talking to someone, Bible passages roll off their lips even if they don't know exactly where it's from. 
and they might not be able to say the proverb says that that path leads to destruction, but they can say there's a way that seems right to a man and its end is the way of death. Ken, what's some of the things you say to people out on the street? How about the wicked flee when no man pursues? <laughs> now, what verse is that? I don't remember. <laughs> but they're in our minds. So when we need them, they're there because the word of God becomes a part of you. And it didn't come with the chapter and verse numbers in it. We've added those. So it's more important to know what it says than exactly where. As a student, it's good to know where, so you can find it, and especially to teach other people. But I think what happened with Paul is this was a stream of consciousness. These six verses, these six quotes from the Old Testament just flowed out of him because it was a part of him, the scriptures, from before he was saved even, and then after he was saved. Now, if that's true, if these were all in Paul's mind and as he's writing, he says, now let me quote verses that say that everybody's a sinner. So he starts thinking of them, and one after the other, he writes them down, paraphrases a couple of them, and he's going to town. Well, where does inspiration fit in if he was doing that? Wasn't this all scripted in heaven, scripted before the foundation of the earth, and then it was just... It was just given like to a dictation, to a stenographer, and Paul sitting there typing away. No, Paul had a scribe, and he was dictating. And he was saying what was in his mind to say. Yes, God inspired that these books of the Bible, that they would be written and become scripture, but he worked in and through real men in a real way. These men wrote about real events, from their own experience, from their own education, things they learned, either from teachers, rabbis, who read them the scripture, their own readings, and at times, directly from God, through visions, signs, and wonders, God would communicate with them, and they would write. And assuming that they wrote what God wanted to have written, God inspiring them, leading them, then God also inspired, he led that their writings would be incorporated into the scriptures and become eventually part of the canon. The next three verses come from Isaiah 59 and from Proverbs chapter 1. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Now, that first part, their feet are swift to shed blood. Question, is everyone, I have a lot of pro-life activists in here, so maybe I'll get flack, but I don't think so. Is everyone a murderer? Now, I have a police officer here, he's saying no. I agree, no. Everyone's not a murderer. Now, Paul writes in this passage, this section, he's talking about everybody, right? None. No, not one. Not one. They have all. They have all together. And then he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Well, he's describing the lot of the entire human race. And as a group, taken as a group, murder is characteristic of the human race. Murder and stealing and adultery, that's characteristic. 
but it doesn't mean that every person commits every one of those crimes. Not everyone is a murderer. Yes, if they're angry without cause, they share in the guilt of breaking the whole law. They've broken the law. But still, internalized anger is not the same as the shedding of innocent blood. A baby who dies as an infant, for example, has not shed innocent blood, has he? Children that are aborted, they're not guilty of murder. They're victims. So throughout this passage, there are exceptions, significant exceptions. We have to understand it in its context and the figures as they're intended to be understood. So not all these comments apply to every person individually, but they form a generalization of our human race. And they also generalize each unbeliever's life, generally speaking, <laughs> overall. <laughs> so Paul's sixth quote in verse 18 comes from Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And thus ends Paul's summary condemnation of the human race apart from God and his statement of their need for God. That's what he's putting forth here. And now we move from his quotes of the Old Testament to strong statements of his own theology, which we've already covered is somewhat different than the theology that came before him because God gave him a different message, not circumcision, but uncircumcision. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. This verse we need to make famous. This needs to take its place somewhere near John 3.16. It's not that big yet, but someday we'll put it in neon lights. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law is a ministry of condemnation. You are guilty. That's what the law says. Why? Because of our flesh, the law brings guilt. But to whom does the law speak? There are many Christians who teach that we should keep the law, that we're saved to keep the law. They say you can never be saved by the law, but you're saved to keep the law so that the law is a ministry and that you're to abide by it. You're to live by it. But to whom does this law speak? Well, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Many Christians hold contradictory beliefs. They will agree with Paul that we're not under the law when they're forced to, because it says it right there, you are not under the law, but under grace. So they say, well, we're not under the law, yet they teach that believers should keep the law. How does that work? If you're not under it, why would you have to keep it? But that's the contradictory teaching of, I think, millions of Christians. If you are not under the law, then you should not be striving to keep the law. It's a meaningless concept as far as any positive outcome is concerned. But as far as negative outcomes... It's loaded with trouble. You can't even hear what the law says in one sense if you're not under it because 
whatever the law says, it speaks only to those who are under it. Right? Isn't that pretty clear? Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. To interpret the Bible, you must know who said what to whom. And here it is the law speaking, and it only speaks to those under the law. And what does it say to them? You are justified. <laughs> no. It tells them that they are guilty before God. Guilty before God. So think for a moment about God's justice. In the Mosaic law, it says, keep the Sabbath. And if you don't, you're cut off. And circumcise. And if you don't, you're cut off. Well, what if a pagan growing up in India 2,500 years ago, and he never heard of Moses, never heard of Abraham, never heard of the idea of circumcision or the Sabbath. Is God going to judge him for not circumcising and not keeping the Sabbath? No, he will not. Because God is a just God. And he holds us accountable for what we have heard. To whom much is given, much is required. He does not hold us accountable for that which we have not heard. But God gave that pagan a law written on his heart, his own conscience, which we've talked about in the last couple of classes. And so if he goes to hell, it will be with his own conscience judging him, condemning him, and sentencing him, along with, of course, the concurrence of God and his angels and the redeemed will concur with his conscience that, yes, you are condemned. But if you hear the Christian message, that was a pagan in India who never heard, the unsolicited, as we call them. If you hear the Christian message of the Ten Commandments and then of Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and you reject him, you reject the Messiah, then you are under the law and you're guilty before God. And there is no way to be justified. You are stuck. And that's what Paul's talking about here. If you hear the Christian message and reject Christ, there is no possible way of being justified under the law. Verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, the deeds of the law could never make up for rejecting the Messiah, the risen Savior. You reject Jesus, you're going to make it up by doing good works. That cannot happen. So, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, how about that unsolicited Gentile that we've talked about in Romans 1 and Romans 2? And quite extensively in Romans 2, where Paul writes that the unsolicited Gentile who's never heard that if he believes in the true creator, not the pagan idols, and he honors the creator by living according to his conscience, then that man will be excused by the law that God put on his heart and gain him eternal life. Now that's what Paul says straight out in Romans 2. So how could that be then, if by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified? Well, the unsolicited Gentile who's never heard, he has to live by the law that God wrote on his heart, 
the same way God wrote the law on the Ten Commandments. This is pretty similar and mostly the same law with a few symbolic additions to it. What happens to the unsolicited Gentile who honors the Creator is very similar to what happens to the Jew who seeks to honor Jehovah by living with the law of Moses. They have the same deals. They keep the law, they fail, but they're repentant toward God and he forgives them. And so he gives them his mercy and his grace and they could be saved in that way. So for them, the Bible does not say for the Jew under the law, he cannot be saved under the law. The Bible doesn't say that. But Paul says that. Other than Paul's writings, there are no negative passages about the law in the Bible. No shortcomings of the law. Paul's the one who points that out. And those shortcomings became valid when God gave us the dispensation of grace alone. Because until then, the law was the channel through which God gave people grace. If you circumcised, then you were in his covenant. Then you could be graced out by him if you kept the law and you kept the Sabbath. And when you sinned, you were repentant and offered sacrifices, you can be saved. But if you said, I'm not going to circumcise, I'm not keeping the Sabbath, and I'm certainly not offering any of those sacrifices, you're in big trouble. You're going to hell. Because God gave a way of salvation through Moses, through the covenant on Mount Sinai. So when we try to take Paul's teachings and apply it to Moses, we have a real difficult time of it. What does it mean? How does it fit? Try to squeeze it in. But squeezing in Romans 3.19 into Exodus 20 is just as bad as doing the opposite. It doesn't work. This is the theology of the gospel of grace. In the next chapter, Paul writes that God justifies the one who does not work. If you don't have good works, God will justify you, if you believe only. But under the covenant of circumcision, under the Mosaic law, and under conscience, God justifies those who both believe and do the works of the law. For as James writes, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Ouch. No Baptist would ever have that on a plaque in their church. Ever. But James would, and Moses would, John the Baptist would, but not us in the body of Christ. And I love the last phrase in this verse 20, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was that? Well, it represented the law. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the knowledge of good and evil? It's the law. That's what it is. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, the little ones who were under the age of accountability, it says they did not have the knowledge of good and evil. Does it say that? It does. It says they did not have the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? They were not old enough to understand the law. Now, what that age exactly is is quite a debate in our church. But it's clear that God has an age of accountability and under that age, you don't understand the law and 
Moses calls it, they do not have the knowledge of good and evil. Moses is the same guy who wrote Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, where it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here, the law is the knowledge of sin. And so that's what that tree was all about. And Adam and Eve, if they partook of that tree, if they partook of the law, it would kill them. And Paul says to us, if you partake of the law, it will kill you. Because the law is a ministry of death. And the serpent said to Eve, oh, it won't kill you, but you can be like God if you partake of it. And the legalist says to the Christian, oh, the law won't kill you. If you want to be righteous, partake of the law. Live by the law. Only then can you be like God. The argument has not changed in 6,000 years. It's the same. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. When Paul says, but now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, that implies that there's a new thing going on. It used to be that the righteousness of God came through the law. God and the law, they weren't enemies. He gave Mount Sinai for a reason. But now righteousness apart from the law is revealed. And when Paul says being witnessed by the law and the prophets, he often quoted from the Old Testament to fortify the principles that were in his theology. And even if the passages he quoted didn't really directly make his point, he would maybe grab it or wrench it a little out of context, and he'd maybe use it sometimes to make the exact opposite point that the Old Testament author was making. But he says, look at this verse in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. That puts out a principle that I could use in my gospel, that we live only by faith. And look at this in the Old Testament, where the kingdom of Israel would grow and eventually the Gentiles would come into it. That lays out a principle that God loves the Gentiles and therefore my gospel is not really all that foreign. So that's what he would do. And in that way, this is all witnessed by the law and the prophets. For there is no difference, and that seems to hang with the next verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. So we have all sinned, we've fallen short, but we're justified freely. We don't have to work. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation. What does that mean, propitiation? Well, the word is an atonement, an atoning sacrifice that regains favor. So we've fallen from favor with God, Jesus Christ, is our atoning sacrifice. Well, that word is the same word for mercy seat in the Old Testament. In the mercy seat, remember the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark was the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that budded, and what else was in there? A quart of manna. 
that box was called the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Testimony because the law that was in it, the Ten Commandments, and the miracles were the testimony against Israel. By the testimony of two or three witnesses, God says you can have a conviction. And there's the testimony of the law and of the miracles that everything that God did for Israel, still they rejected him. They were condemned. And the mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the mercy seat, actually molded right into it, were two angels where their wings touched over. And this was in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would offer the sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. And that all was a symbol of Jesus Christ, his offering, not once a year, but once for all time, of his own blood on the cross. So God sent forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. In other words, there were believers in the Old Testament and they were sinning and God would allow them to go to paradise, not to hell, not to the terrible part of hell. But how could he do that? Jesus hadn't died yet. Well, God passed over their sins. He winked at them. He covered them with the blood of animals. Their blood couldn't take away sins, but God knew that Christ's blood was coming. Christ's blood would be shed so he could temporarily forgive them until it became permanent in the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. The implication is, if you're a Jew, you can boast a little bit because you keep the law. And Paul does a little of that. He says, let me boast a little bit. I speak as a man. But if you're saved by grace and you're not under the law, how can you boast? It's all of God in response only to your accepting his gift. Verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That was radical theology in Paul's day. That was a departure. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Notice that? If he was the God of the Jews only, then what Paul's saying is not true. Because the Jewish way works and the law was part of your justification. But Paul's saying, but now we're saved apart from the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And you know what? They didn't have the law. So there, Paul's saying. They didn't have the law, and yet look at the unsolicited Gentile. He goes to heaven. He never heard of Moses. So it's possible to get to heaven without ever hearing of Moses. And guess what, Paul says? Now, through the gospel of grace, it's possible to get to heaven just by faith in Jesus Christ, apart from any law. Verse 30, Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. 
Now in the next chapter 4, and in Romans 10, Paul will clarify what he said in verse 30. He'll say, Abraham is the father of two groups, of the circumcision and the uncircumcision. He was justified by faith alone first, and then he was circumcised. Why? So he could be the father of those who are circumcised, who believe and do the works of the law, and he could be the father of those who are not circumcised, who only believe. That's Romans 4. And in Romans 10, Paul says he writes of the righteousness which is of the law, which is you believe and you do good works, and the righteousness which is of faith only, which is you only believe. That is a fundamental principle in the entire book of Romans. And without understanding that, the book cannot be understood. May God bless you all.